Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm John Fensterwald, Louis Friedberg is away. This is our first show in 2020, and I am thrilled to have with me today a guest co-host many of you probably know, Ryan Smith. He is the Chief External Officer for the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools, a nonprofit that manages 18 schools within Los Angeles Unified. Ryan is also co-chair of State Superintendent Tony Thurman's Closing the Achievement Gap initiative. Ryan, great to have you on the show today. Happy to be here, and happy 2020 to you, John. Thank you. You too as well. Thank you. You know, and we're face-to-face. We're recording this podcast in our L.A. office. So, Ryan, you're a frank and savvy guy. I asked you here today because I wrote my annual predictions column this week, and I wanted you, in all candor, to tell me whether I'm a fool or a savant and to hear some of your own predictions. So before we get down to specifics, how are you feeling about 2020? Going into it with great hope or trepidation in terms of you know, education in California and the nation? Well, you know me, John. I'm a pretty hopeful guy. So I am looking at the horizon and seeing some really wonderful things coming down the pike. Clearly, we have work to do here in California, but there's a lot to celebrate as well. So onward to 2020. So before we get into these specific predictions, give me one thing you're hopeful about. Well, we have a new administration that seems really interested on issues of racial and social justice, which I think will translate to education well. We have a new state superintendent. We have a new chair of the State Board of Education, each championing issues of education equity. Uh, I think we're in for a really good year when it comes to issues about how we support low-income students and students of color. So I'm, I'm hopeful about that. Obviously, we need to put our money where our mouth is, but I think we'll get there as well. Speaking of money, let's get down to it. You know, when I wrote my column, I used something called the Fensters. <laughs> and we start one to five, and one is the least likely to happen, and five is it's definitely going to happen. So you can wager Ryan in your own Ryan's or Smith. It's up to it. you. Love it. So you mentioned money mm-hmm. and education funding. It's going to be huge this year. And there will be a $15 billion construction bond in March. And Newsom negotiated the terms and put some equity aspects into it. And he's really behind it. So uh, do you think it'll pass? I actually think the school construction bond will pass. I think the uh, governor put his muscle behind it. And knowing the governor and knowing how amazing of a campaigner he is, I think people will get excited about it. There are a lot of things on the ballot, uh, but I, I think this is one that's, uh, that you've rated correctly. So I give it five uh, Finster Walds as well. Fensters are good enough, or, or five Ryans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know what? The governor hasn't said anything about the uh, schools and communities first. That's the split roll tax that will change Prop 13's limits on business and commercial property taxes while leaving the limits on homeowners intact. It will raise $12 billion, and 40% of that going into K-12 and community colleges. So far, it's not doing so well in the latest poll So do you think the governor will back it first off? Well, first I'll say there's an impressive number of groups who are actually endorsing it. You have the California Teachers Association. You have groups like the Advancement Project, Community Coalition, and the list goes on. So these are groups that have known to put boots on the ground. They're known to galvanize their bases. They're known to be able to help turn out votes and help really raise awareness about important issues. So if they put all of their energy and muscle behind it, I can't see it not passing. And as far as the governor's silence, I think we'll see him become more vocal as a lot of those advocacy groups turn up the heat 
So I hear you saying put muscle and money behind it. I, I think I hear Howard Jarvis Association and the California Roundtable saying the same thing. It's going to be expensive, isn't it? I think so. But, you know, California is a state of grassroots energy. So even though we'll see a lot of these corporations putting a lot of muscle around defeating our schools communities first, I believe that at the end of the day we'll see a lot of low-income communities, communities of color, as well as those who are champions of education come out and, and, and actually approve it. So, you know, one thing before we get to that election, there are groups that are like Children Now that have called for the governor to go in and negotiate an alternative, something that, of course, would include early education for them and and that they say may have a better chance of winning, maybe kind of an income tax or something like that. Do you see the governor doing that or just getting behind this? I don't know. I mean, we see groups like the California School Boards Association who are talking potentially about alternatives. So I think that's on the table. But truthfully, this has been like five years in the making. There's been community organizations and civil rights groups and education groups who've been talking about and championing the split role initiative. So I'd be really shocked if this isn't what people are going to vote for and that this isn't actually on the ballot. Uh, my money is behind schools communities first, and I should just be candid and say the partnership is endorsing the initiative as well. Well, this would be the first change to Proposition 13 since it was passed in 1978. So you know there's going to be a lot of interest in this. It'll be fascinating to watch. No easy feat. But the electorate's also changed in California as well. We have a younger electorate. We have a more diverse electorate. So 1978 may be a thing of the past, but we'll see. It's it's an uphill battle for sure. But I think um, the equity committee will come out victorious. So let me turn to the achievement gap that I know you're interested in and, and you're co-chair of of Superintendent Tony Thurman's Achievement Gap Initiative. So are you predicting anything will come out of that this year? Well, I'll say the state superintendent had a good first year of really listening to stakeholders. I know there was at least seven town halls up and down the state where we were able to collect ideas about how you remediate the gap, how you close it, where the other equity gaps that we should be focused on. I think this year will be a year of action. How would it be manifest? How would we see that? Legislation and the budget? Give me something specific you think might happen this year. I think we'll see grants to County Office of Education in order to um, fight some of the literacy gaps we see. I think we'll start to see legislation around how we can target efforts that could improve our diversity within the educator pipeline. I think the state superintendent has a really amazing platform to just talk about the issue and say, look, if we are going to close gaps in this state, we must do it together. And he has a good team in the Department of Education. I think the governor's office is really excited, particularly around data and transparency and how that can address equity gaps. So there are a lot of things to celebrate, but I will say, We've seen these stubborn gaps for decades. So it's going to take more than a couple of years to actually see them close. Achievement gap is really clear in math. Uh, and it, in some ways, it's getting wider. And under, even under the Common Core for the last seven years, we had great hope that math scores would improve as well as English language arts. It's not happening. So I said maybe it's time for the governor to put at least hundreds of millions of dollars somehow into an initiative to either in training for teachers or something in math. What, what do you think? I, I said three fensters. You know, it's kind of ambiguous on that one. But what do you think? You know what? I'm going to give it four Ryans, and I'll oh, say good, this. I'll good. say why. Number one, you, we could not be the 
beacon on the hill when it comes to innovation, um, when it comes to the tech industry, and then see uh, our students languishing on the sideline when it comes to math scores, particularly low-income students and students of color, particularly black students. So if we are going to be the bedrock of all things innovation, we need our students to be proficient in math. So putting our money where our mouth is as far as math is important. Uh, and because I know this governor cares about STEM, I believe the state superintendent is talking about many STEM initiatives as well. This could be the year of math, and uh, I'll be excited about it. We'll have to calculate the results. Well, you know, we talked about the achievement gap, and that's what the local control funding formula is supposed to address by giving more money to those districts with high percentages of low-income students, English learners, foster youths, and homeless youths. And yet there was a very sharply worded audit, a critical audit that came out from Elaine Howe, a state auditor, who said that she couldn't really see where this money is being, how it's being spent, and in some cases spent incorrectly, so it's not getting to the students for whom it's addressed. She recommended some very specific changes in the law and I think this is going to create maybe a dilemma for the governor between where the balance is between local control which is giving districts sort of the flexibility and the fact that the legislature wants more accountability they want to see clearly how do you think that's going to shake up well, I'll say this. As someone who once led Education Trust West, we championed local control funding formula. I think we believe in implementation advocacy. So if we have put our might behind you know, the student-weighted formula and it's not getting the results, then I think we need to move even further, meaning what more can we be doing to make sure that there is accountability? I know that this governor, I think, is going to be the governor of data. Our former governor, Governor Brown, would say data schmada sometimes, but this governor has uh, invested a lot of money in thinking about how to create longitudinal data systems. So I think data is going to be a really good first step in us really figuring out where our money is being spent. But I, I will say this, there also has to be accountability as well. I say that data and transparency issues are important, but you know, having data without accountability is like having access to a police officer's body camera. And if we see an officer um, abusing their authority, doing nothing. We need to have the accountability measures to make sure that LCFF is um, actually getting its intended results. So it'll be interesting to see if the governor either negotiates something at the end of the budget and what's called a trailer bill or whether it supports actual legislation. I think I said a four-fenster going for it. I think something's going to happen. Uh, something has to happen. So another subject that was really big last year was charter schools. We had a very controversial negotiation, a rewrite, basically, of the charter school law that the governor and his aides led. And so it seems to quiet things down because we don't know how a law is quite going to be implemented. I think maybe courts will get involved as to interpret what the wording is. But I think it's going to quiet things down in Sacramento. But I'm predicting that it's going to take a new shape, which is a lot more money in local school board races because it's the flexibility that local boards have, which will determine whether or not there are a lot of new charter schools approved and also whether they're renewed. And so I'm just saying there'll be you know, more money than we're even used to in the past for school board elections because of a charter school balance here. And I think L.A. is one of them. Uh, an election's coming in March, and that represents the kind of, I think, friction we're going to have. What do you think, Ryan? Well, I don't know if much more money can be poured into <laughs> Los Angeles Unified uh, school right board that. races, as I believe they're the most expensive uh, school board races in the entire country. I will say what's interesting about the charter fight is that because it's more local, county offices of education are going to get a lot more 
of the charter petitions in front of them. Yeah. And I wonder if they have the type of capacity to actually handle that. So I'm interested to see what our county offices of education do. But just to get on the balcony, it feels like it's been 10 years of charter schools versus traditional schools versus teachers unions. My prediction is that hopefully something like Schools and Communities First and other initiatives can start to unify many of these camps so that we're really fighting to create a bigger pie and not just fighting over kind of the crumbs we have now. And not only that, we have 6 million students in K-12. The conversation can't just be charters versus teachers unions. There's so many issues that are dynamic across the state. And I just think that this conversation is taking up too much oxygen. I think that's what the governor thought, too, when he said, I want to settle this thing once, at least for now, in Sacramento so we can really focus on these issues. And I did, as you mentioned, California Charter School Association is one of the groups behind mm-hmm. the, the uh, split roll that's tax. Right. Yeah. So one of the issues next year, Ryan, will be whether or not the UC Board of Regents decides to eliminate the use of the SAT and ACT for college admissions or qualifies it, maybe use it for a different fashion. What what do you think is going to happen here? Well, I will say this. Advocates for years have been talking about some of the inherent biases that come with SATs in particular. So we're finally starting to see a really robust conversation about what these admissions tests mean, particularly for uh, students who've come from under-resourced communities and students of color. I think the next step is to uh, see if the Smarter Balance Assessments will be a replacement for SATs. And I think there should be a study to see if, if, that's, if that's viable or not. Uh, but one thing for certain, given that California is the epicenter of the college admission scandal across the country, uh, there certainly needs to be a conversation about how we level the playing field. And if that starts in Sacramento, um, so be it. But I know that it feels like there's some students going through a side door, and while many of our students are shut out the front door when it comes to UCs and CSUs, and we can no longer tolerate that. I will say with the CSU fourth year proposal in math, it's it's another example of how our systems are not talking to each other, and unfortunately, the folks who suffer are students. And what I mean by that, you know, the CSU fourth year math requirement is one that does increase rigor and could be really exciting for students of color if the K-12 community was actually a part of the planning and implementation of this uh, policy proposal. But it feels like CSU is jamming a, a proposal down the throats of our K-12 colleagues, and I'm not sure they're ready to actually level up on what that would mean for them. Well, it would not be implemented for a number of years. And so it really does present a chance to create new courses that would excite students other than, say, you know, pre-calc statistics and other STEM-related courses. That's the hope, I think. If implemented effectively. So I'll say this. I'm I'm a son of California. I went through all public school and went through UCLA. I remember when a young UC Regent Ward Connerly said, we don't need racial preferences. You know, if we got rid of them, clearly students of color will continue to advance through our system and be admitted into our system. And I was there the first year after implementation. I was one of 27 black men in a class of 4,000 students who were admitted to UCLA on academics alone. And I remember Ward Connerly going like a oopsie 
well, we, we can't afford oopsies when we're talking about something as important as if our students actually go through the system. So I'm concerned that CSU's proposal is a little short-sighted. And even with the seven years of uh, implementation runway, you know, we're, we're a decade more after the implementation of Prop 209. And the number of black students who go to the flagship schools have never rebounded. And we have a moral imperative to make sure that before we pass policy, that we do right by students. Well, let's hope something uh, gets worked out, because I think four or five fensters that that policy is going to be passed with I, next I, year. I would give a one, be one Ryan on that one. <laughs> I think that's hope, Ryan, more than expectation. We'll see. We'll see. So, Ryan, before we end this, let's look ahead, say, uh, 10 months. Do you see any issue that we're not talking about, and I didn't include in my predictions that, in fact, will surprise us and we, we will be talking about in November that we just have not anticipated? Well, I, I think I, I hit on this one. I think data and transparency is going to be the legacy of this governor and K-12. Where Governor Brown saw challenges in data and thought it was just used for research, I think um, Governor Newsom actually sees it as a public good, that data used as a tool for good can absolutely help close gaps and move to results. So I think the longitudinal data system is going to be really exciting. He's hired an amazing uh, young person, Benchita, who is uh, galvanizing people up and down the state. Um, there's conversations around the, the kind of equity imperative there. This is going to be a governor who embraces data, and we just went through eight years of a governor who did not. Well, I think I'm going to make a prediction on one thing that expresses that data, and mm -hmm. I think, and that is the, we're going to be talking a lot about underqualified teachers, teachers who are ineffective or inexperienced or out of field, who are teaching in courses that they shouldn't. And the reason is that the Every Student Succeeds Act requires a collection of this data. And so for the, for the first time this spring, we're going to have that data enable us to look at schools and decide where the gaps are, where underqualified, inexperienced teachers are in low-income schools in disproportionate numbers. And we're going to have that data. And finally, I think that's going to lead to something in the local control, like an accountability plan, which districts create every year, and the dashboard, which is how we measure and compare districts. I think we're going to actually have this, and that's going to force districts to pay attention for the first time to who is teaching in our most needy schools and how do we fix that? What do you think? Amen, my brother. I absolutely agree and would give that five Ryans as well. And I think this is a conversation we need to have in the state. Unfortunately, there are a disproportionate amount of inexperienced and out-of-classroom teachers that teach in low-income communities. And we all know the research that says who teaches in the classroom matters. And if we're ever going to close opportunity achievement gaps, we have to address issues of staffing. So if we know we have inexperienced and out-of-classroom teachers that are just disproportionately teaching in communities of color, and we see that data and do nothing about it, then we are absolutely infringing on the rights of students. So yes for the data, but I will say data and accountability will get us to the freedom that we want for our students. Well, Ryan, if it's not on the agenda, if you don't have four Ryans by the end of 2020, we're going to have you back on the show <laughs> and you can raise the issue again. But thanks for joining us today. It's been fun. Thank you, of course. Thanks for having me. I wouldn't want to ring in the new year anyway, but to be here with John Finsterwald. And thanks for coming to my hometown, sunny Los Angeles, to do so. This wraps it up for the first podcast in 2020. We thank our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation, 
and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.